Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I am Gurgit Deegan, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor. Coming up in today's episode, I'll be discussing Black History Month with Dentsu Creative's Eto Davies, Calling's Rani Patel and the Advertising Association's Sharon Lloyd-Barnes. But first, we have Shauna here in the studio, who's a reporter at Campaign. Hello, Shauna. Hello. <laughs> um, so we're going to discuss a couple of uh, articles we've published this week. And the biggest story comes out of WPP. Tell us uh, what the big story is, Shauna. Um, so yesterday, uh, they announced that they were merging creative agencies, Wonderman Thompson and VML Y&R, uh, to create VML. Um so it's going to be led by John Cook, who is VMLYNR's chief executive as global chief executive, mm. and Mel Edwards, who is global chief executive of Wonderman Thompson as global president. But we don't know what's going to happen to uh, Pitt Pulbert and Justin Paul, who are Wonderman Thompson UK chief executive and VMLYNR. Uh, UK like chief so they're the UK's yeah the UK for the agencies yeah yeah so we don't know what's going to happen to them but they have said that there's no job cuts like planned um and like so everyone should be good in that respect it's like a mammoth agency it's, can agencies get any bigger <laughs> well it's like so it's going to house more than 30,000 people um that's global is that global? I think across, so. Oh, across 64 markets. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but this is obviously like the second merger they've done in, as of late, um, with like the other being like Essence uh, Mediacom. Yeah. So, um, was that the last one that they've done is the Essence Mediacom? Yeah. One? It's like the last yeah. big one. Um, and it's just kind of like raised questions about like, well, I suppose we're going to be finding out more in the weeks as we like cover it more and things. Um, but there was kind of like a mixed reaction from like market analysts. Um, an article went up on our site today by Ben Bolt, yeah. um, which you can read. But like in terms of like what they thought, it was that like so Barclays Capital thought it was quite good because they already share like 8% of their clients. 80%. 80 percent Yeah. And then like the simplification of structure could like benefit like back office functions. But then the client bit, isn't that a lot of client conflict there? I want. Yeah. I've no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just making a point. I'm not asking you to answer it. Um, no, I think, um, yeah, they share 80% of their clients. And so like Ford, Microsoft, Dell, Coca-Cola, Nestle. Um, so I don't know how that will work, but I suppose that's something that we'll figure out. But it might end up being like, so you know how we have Essence Mediacom and Essence Mediacom yes. X in the UK. I don't know if the plan would be similar um, for them to operate kind of separately, but together in the UK. Um, I don't know if that's part of the plan, but there were those kind of like good points. But then on the kind of more negative side, like the Bank of America suggested things might get worse before they get better um, and said that the surprise news signaled a challenging trading environment. Um, And also like the question of like restructuring charges and yeah, just the kind of like how long this kind of like restructure will take, because I think. They said it would come into being on January 2024. But obviously, that kind of thing is very, like, disruptive. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So thank you for all of that information. That is really helpful. Thank you. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was your Faces to Watch piece. Um, that came out of the back of a survey that we did on our Faces to Watch entrance. What did you? What were your key findings? Um, so there's quite a lot that came from it, but I think the key ones for me were harassment like uh, the info we found out about that so from it's quite it's a small sample size but in the um 
research, it was seven out of nine women who experienced or witnessed sexual harassment in the workplace were disappointed in how it was handled. Uh, and then three out of three people of colour who experienced or witnessed harassment in the workplace were also disappointed, which I think is, I don't know, it's kind of disappointing. Um, it feels kind of not surprising, but also like, yeah, it's kind of like sad to hear about. Um, and then I think the other would be the cost of living crisis and people being worried about that and looking at kind of how we can mitigate people's worries and things. So on the, should we tackle harassment bit first? Yeah. Who did, who did you speak with and who did? I spoke with Chloe Davies, who's formerly like head of social impact at Lucky Generals and she's now a consultant. Um, and she so said... So she set up It's a Village now. Pardon? She, she's, she founded It's a Village after leaving yes. Lucky Generals. Yeah. 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 yeah so... She knows a lot. <laughs> she does know a lot. <laughs> she, yeah. she knows her stuff. Um, she kind of said that um, even though they know it's happening, even though they witness it, no one's actually going to do anything about it. So people will report it in a survey, but they won't actually say anything. And then Maria McDowell, who is um, the founder of Lollipop Mentoring, kind of like added on to that. And she said, like, nobody trusts HR, which is quite controversial, but they don't because HR works for the company and not for the people, which... I think yeah, you understand. Don't a lot of you? people do say that, and a lot of people do feel like that. I think. And um, I wrote a piece about um, harassment and um, sexual harassment and NDAs and the use of NDAs yeah, yeah, earlier yeah. this year. That point was made in there as well. Um, and actually, the CEO uh, Oliver, she um, she comes from HR background, and she was talking about that and about empowering HR teams. Yeah, um, you know, I I, I think that's good what she's doing but it's quite rare to see sometimes yeah. isn't it unfortunately a lot of people have said and the, the their experiences feel like hr is against them yeah i think like so uh maria um from lollipop mentoring did say like she was she was saying like you know it's good to have a third party involved like her own which is lollipop mentoring but there are other ones other, other ones are available um to have that third party involved and be someone that you can trust but then I also spoke to Polly Dedman, who's like director of performance at Neverland. And she said that, you know, they try and create a culture of like speaking out whatever it is. Like kind of like if you've got an idea in a meeting, if you're like on production, but you've got like a, a copywriting idea, you speak out. Like if you don't like the way someone said something in a meeting, you speak out. Like, mm. And I think, and she did admit that's easier to be done in an independent and indie, yeah. indie agency. Yeah. But it, it was a good point of like, yeah. if you do it for everything, then people won't feel as afraid to yeah. like make it. Because sometimes it's something little and it's like, well, I don't need a big HR meeting. I don't need to stop the whole operation. I just need to like be like, look, I wasn't crazy about what you just said there and stuff. Yeah, which, exactly. Which is good. Yeah. So then uh, the cost of living crisis, we asked a question around that as well. And what did the respondents say? Uh, well, I think it was to be as expected in that um, yeah. <laughs> everyone was really worried about it. Um, so 19 out of 22 women were worried about it and 10 out of 12 men were also worried about it. Um, and we were kind of talking about like um, alternatives to pay sometimes because, you know, sometimes you go for a... Other benefits. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. a pay rise and they go, no. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, Sorry. like it's not always possible for like some agencies and things like that. And I think... Um, Polly talked about like pouring as much money into salary raises as possible um but like you know there are alternatives in place so I think um so Maria mentioned like vouchers 
uh, and then like come Vouchers. yeah like to like help with like i don't know oh food to, shopping yeah like food shopping oh, and see. things like that yeah. and then because then you the companies get like is it like tax efficient benefits yes, from yes, giving yes. those vouchers so it's like yes. not necessarily as much of a burden yeah. on them if they can't afford it and then like offering lunch and then like bringing people to do like financial literacy um and things like that but i think ultimately the conclusion was is that money talks and that ultimately people want more money in yeah. their pocket because that is what's going to make their lives easier yeah exactly all right Sharona, thank you so much You're uh, that was a great chat and on to our next segment so on to our main interview today about black history month i'd like to welcome ete davies chief operating officer at dentsu creative emia rani patel co-founder and managing director at calling Sharon Lloyd-Barnes, Commercial Director and Inclusion Lead at the Advertising Association. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Hi. Morning. Hi. Thank you. So for those of our listeners who are not aware, this year's theme for Black History Month is Saluting Our Sisters. It aims to celebrate pioneering black women and their contribution to society, business, arts and culture, STEM subjects, politics and their barrier breaking leadership. I'd like to kick off with Rani. Um, why do you think it's so important for businesses to have black female leadership? So the thing that I think is really interesting that the industry hasn't quite um, cotton on to is that black women are one of the most marginalized in society. And um, as a result of that, they're actually um, prime and optimal for working in our industry because of how much they're marginalized every day is requiring them to like overcome a number of obstacles and problem solve. And when we look at the parallels of that versus what we do every day in the industry is to solve big brands problems. Um, so when it comes to being able to find solutions and being resourceful, it's part of a black woman's lived experience. Um, and that's where why I think that it's really important for them to be part of the industry because that diverse way of thinking is where the innovation will happen for the industry. I think the industry's got to a point where it needs to rethink its problems. And as part of that, it needs to bring in new thinkers and black women are a pool of talent that is currently untapped. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. If I can just jump in on... on... Rani's point around um, lateral thinking, um, which you know we need now more than ever, particularly in the creative space, which is being challenged on its value. And, and you know, it's it's evidenced in lots of studies that lateral thinking tends to exist more in groups where they've had to um, well overcome barriers, challenges, like uh, obstacles, and work through um, the sort of compounding effects that an intersectional group like Black women face. You know, just not just in society, but in in sort of the the working environment. I'd also point the fact that like, particularly in a leadership point of view, like we have evidence of uh, black women in our industry that have gone, you know, haven't been able to progress through in the corporate world for whatever reason, have gone on to set up their own businesses and have been successful, you know, in, in doing those. And when you think about the leadership skills and the skills that you require to run and scale your own business, you know, when you talk about entrepreneurism and people management and resilience and, you know, strategic thinking, you know, innovation, commercial astuteness, those are arguably the top of the list of what anyone is seeking in a leader in our industry period, particularly sort of business and sort of industry leaders. So like, we see the proof in ourselves as to the talent that we are not sustaining, you know, within 
or organizations that are you know, doing their own thing or going to other sectors that could be within our organizations and actually helping them to, to grow to be more successful. What about you, Sharon? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just building on the sort of necessity for problem solving skills, I think, in our industry, particularly as a creative industry. Um, but also it feels like, you know, we're doing so much work at entry level to recruit diverse talent, but especially young black talent. Um, there's loads of initiatives, um, whether it's external businesses or, or within you know big agency groups um, and, and other organizations. We can see it representation. We do pretty well on that. The biggest problem we've got is retention, as we both sort of, you know, everyone sort of touched on. Um, and if you can't see yourself in a senior position, I think it's it's definitely going to impact that notion about, you know, is this an industry for me? Is it where I want to stay? And I'm sure it's influencing a lot of people's decision to leave. Um, and either, as Eto said, set up their own thing or just do something completely different. Just uh, to, could you provide a bit of context, Sharon? Because I know um, the All In Census has quite a lot of data mm. um, on this topic. What did the the latest All In Census study find? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the latest one we did in March, just to remind everybody, uh, it's the second time we've done the All In Census. The first time we ran it was in twenty twenty one, and actually, the, the, there's a slight a slight improvement on um, the experience of black people in the industry. But it's it's just worth stating again that they have from you know the data we now have across two census, um, the most negative experience um, and, and face the most discrimination of any of the groups that, that you know, we record. Um, and the experience of black women is significantly worse than of, of black men. So uh, just to put that into context, 32% of black people said they were likely to leave the industry within the next two years um, in 2021. That dropped to about 30%, but black women are still at 32% of black women who responded are still saying, you know, they're, they're likely to leave. And so, I mean, I, I can list and maybe do it later on in the call, but, you know, the, the, they're just more likely than any other group to experience discrimination, um, not see themselves in senior positions, have observed inappropriate behaviours, feel constantly anxious, just all, all of the behavioural and sort of cultural things that we, um, we've had about 80, 38 questions that we ask in the, in the census around sort of workplace culture. Um, and, you know, just time and again, they're recording really negative experiences. So for, for that's, that's the sort of context behind the conversation. Yeah, I was just going to say, and I think this is where there's a massive gap, where there is a pool of untapped talent that are prime, and they just probably need to be na- nurtured and, sh- and um, shaped into those roles and to have those specific skill sets like Ete's shared. Um, but then there is the places in which we're expecting them to exist in and thrive, which from the stats that Sharon's sharing, and obviously just from my own lived experience, having been in the industry for about 16 years, it's like I haven't been in an agency that was designed considering me. Um, And we know the legacy of advertising. It wasn't created by black and brown people, but now there is a greater need for that talent to contribute to the industry. It's like, how can these businesses disorganize themselves ultimately to create a new design system that is inclusive? But I would say when we talk about being inclusive, start with how can I include black women because they are the most marginalized because as a result of including them, you are more than likely to 
be able to hold space for other marginalized groups. Um, and I think I've never experienced an agency until I set up Call In that was accommodating a space where multiple marginalized communities could be held. And I think that's because I was at the helm of it and to a selfish point of view was thinking, how do I create an agency that I would want to work at? There's, there's a lot of points there. Uh, in terms, so take a step back. In terms of retention, Ete, what do you think agencies need to do um, to keep? Because I know before you've said to me, kind of young black talent kind of come into agencies, and Sharon made this point as well. It's okay to get, it's easy to get people into to agencies, but then I think before you've mentioned like there's a kind of a two year yeah. kind of. Chain. Yeah, the, the yeah the whole diversity churn, or um, I, I don't know if you know Adrian Walker. He mentioned it like the squeeze the middle, where you get people that get to highly competent um, people, particularly from the black community, and you know especially black women, as um, Sharon and Ronnie have mentioned, get to mid to senior level, possibly even sooner, and then actually don't see a, a route for themselves, or don't see a place for it, or like the organisation isn't inclusive, um, and their experiences terrible uh, you know as per the sort of uh, data that Sharon has, has shared I think um, I really like what Rani said about like the design systems and I think like consciously designing the you know revisiting your systemic kind of uh, like the infrastructure in the organization and how you're how you're designing that because you know as I sort of mentioned before black women in particular as this compounding effects of systemic prejudice because they're this intersectional group and Whilst many organizations will go, well, we're doing a lot to retain in terms of um, gender equality and female leadership progression. And then they might have, you know, activities around the black community and other ethnic groups. But it's clear from the data in All In that it's still underserving the intersectional groups, especially um, uh, black women. The, the starting point, I guess, to solving that issue of um, retention has to be sort of consulting um, and listening to the lived experiences of the people already in your business or, you know, across your network, engaging and collaborating with black women in the black community to look at where the organization is not being inclusive, you know, where retention and progression is is failing from, from you know, their perspective and their experience. Um, but most critically, when you then have that insight as, you know, um, you know uh, leaders or, or those responsible for designing the system, it's down to the business leadership and the infrastructure to make that change and sort of sustain it. A, because they're in the positions of influence and power to ultimately be able to drive that um, equity. But, you know, also, you know, all too often we expect those marginalized or impaired by a system to be the ones tasked with fixing it. And, you know, makes little sense because they're not the cause of the marginalization or the impairment. You know, that, that has to be fixed from within the system, so to speak. Um, so I think that, has to be the the starting point in terms of uh, retention and then just to that that point around designing your systems like because there's been so much work around um uh unconscious bias training and so on and views are polarizing on it now and as to actually how much is unconscious versus how much is baked in you know uh prejudice or systemic challenges that you know organizations and individuals you know have to personally confront but I think there is a job for organizations critically to design their systems to be correctively equitable. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at things like career framework, like succession planning, like development pathways, are these genuinely equitable? Are, you know, are you eliminating all the elements of bias? Are you in engaging 
with all the different communities to make sure that you've considered all of the angles, especially those from most marginalized groups like um, uh, black women. And, you know, are you reviewing it against the input of these um, uh, different communities? Because as individuals, people will always lean into one way or the other. You can't change someone's psychology in one or two hours of unconscious bias training. But if the actual system of meritocracy, progression, retention, development is always correcting the behavior and the psychology, then there is like, there is it, the system itself actually helps correct where people's bias might continue to creep in or people just going on a, on a learning journey towards change. But, you know, you need to make sure the system is designed to help take everybody through that, involve the right people, but also be that constant source of uh, correction and sort of evolution. Sharon, you're nodding. Would you like to add something? Yeah, well, just yeah, adding to the sort of the system, if you like. Um, I think occupational segregation is is a massive issue here as well. Um, certainly, a lot of the women I speak to in the industry, but but the all in census sort of plays it out. Black women are just overrepresented in uh, functions like DNI, in HR, in legal, and completely underrepresent in creative, social media, account management, account planning, sales, production, etc. So I, I just feel, you know, there's, there's clearly been, for want of a better phrase, some box ticking where people have wanted to, you know, uh, in terms of recruitment. Um, and DNI, I guess, didn't really exist in terms of 10 years ago. It probably wasn't a function that existed in most businesses. Uh, I've spoken to several black women who said, I, I've, I've moved into this role in, in DNI from another aspect, another function within the industry, just to get a promotion. Um, so, you know, that, that's always just really stayed with me. So I think that that's a really key part of this sort of system change that, that Eto is talking about is that we just look very differently about how we recruit for various functions across the businesses. Rani, would you like to add anything? No, I think, uh, well, yeah, I do want to add something. Sorry, I was just going to agree with Sharon's point around occupational segregation is that um, when I joined the industry, I didn't see any black or brown women um, senior to me. So I didn't actually see where I could go as a suit, so to speak. Um, and I can I can totally see why you would then move across to departments like DE&I or HR, for example, um, because that's where you're like it's this idea around thriving and surviving, right? So I have been in a survival mentality in order to navigate the industry and kind of like climb the ladder as a suit and kind of hold my space in that in that department in that area of the um, of, of the landscape. But it hasn't always meant that I've been able to thrive. Whereas if maybe I'd moved into a space that was DE and I. I might have thrived because the perception is, well, she's she's black and brown and she has value here because of her lived experience. Whereas in being a suit, coming up as an account director, business director, there wasn't a clear perception of my value. So I was constantly having to prove my value because the expectation was, why would someone that looks like you and sounds like you, which is basically someone that's working class, um, be able to sell in a type of creative work or or speak the same language as um, the clients and be successful at it. So basically, just echoing everything that Sharon and Essay said, it's just like, how do we change the psychology around it? 
because it's a wider ecosystem. It doesn't just sit in the ad agencies. It's also the clients. The clients need to be willing to sit across the table from someone that looks and sounds like me and hear them and see them and receive the creative work as it's intended because there's bias in that. Like who presents the work does massively impact the success of that work being sold in. And, and that's that's a huge issue as well. I wanted to pick up on that point about clients and brands. Now, obviously, to me, obviously, if you have um, a diverse range of people working on a client, that client, that brand can then also target not just, you know, one set group, but for example, black women. Could you explain a bit more about that? Okay, so if I use Colin as the point of view, at Colin, um, we're now a team of 15, and I think about 85% of the team is female, and 60% of the team is black POC. What we find happens at Colin is because everyone is different, but we're an inclusive space, we get to a really interesting place of discourse and therefore innovation in our thinking. So our ideas, and I'm biased because it's the business that I run every day, but I feel that some of our ideas are the most innovative because of that, because of the lived experience and the professional like experience that's like sits on a spectrum that's contributing to the work. The clients see the value in a collective of creatives that come from different lived experiences um, and what that does for their brand and for their work. Because what we say at Calling is that we're an agency for today. We're built from today. So that means that we're inviting all the communities of today to help write and develop the creative because that brand is going to show up and stand up much better for the consumers of today. Um, That is needed. A smart client will know that. Smart brands will know that. And I think what Josh and I found out is actually that brands are ahead of the game in terms of wanting that from their agencies the agencies just haven't caught up and that's because it's back to the system they haven't evolved their system quick quick enough to to facilitate that need yeah i i totally agree with that i i always sort of i find it always strange that you know in an industry where it's about creativity and it's about communications you know mass communications to a very diverse and multifaceted sort of public audience and we, you know we're the bit in between the brand and reaching those audiences that we have to convince ourselves to reflect the audiences the brands want to connect to. Like, where's the authenticity, the insight, you know, the sort of um, the, the realism in in the work that will make it more effective? That actually, you know, is testament to the value of employing your agency if if it isn't reflective of the communities that you are trying to reach or you sort of already exist in. And um, you know, to, to Rani's point, the fact that we are still going through that journey within creative agencies is is, is really strange uh, to me, not to mention the evidence, again, that you know, studies from outside of our industry that points towards you know, diverse uh, you know, intersectional teams where there is better business performance, better innovation. I mean, these are studies from you know, um, McKinsey and you know, other organizations where they, they have consulted, to Rani's point, ironically, into the brands we work with and used you know, that um, research and that data to help those brands to transform and be more ready for current society, but also future society and what that means in terms of their sector and their markets. Like that's our role. We're supposed to be the partners with them in that. We can only do that if we're reflective of the community and the audience and ultimately the customers that they're trying to reach. It feels really simple, but it's something that we still have to convince ourselves around. And um, 
the point Ronnie made around sort of the stereotyping of your inherent uh, characteristics, meaning that like, okay, that's where you're a point of authority, but you can't be a point of authority uh, anywhere else is, is massively reductive. And, and often what you get is um, you have to sort of prove yourself in an exceptional circumstance just to be seen as valid and capable in an area that you're already an expert in. You know, the whole concept of the glass cliff, which again, predominantly happens to uh, black women, but you know, also uh, marginalized groups where they're often hired and promoted into a leadership role where there's a time of crisis or, you know, there's a significant turnaround um, where they are essentially set up to fail um, because the conditions aren't there for their success or they actually turn the situation around and then are replaced almost immediately once, you know, things are out of the woods um, by you know, a white male uh, counterpart. I mean, that's, there is some, it sort of goes back to the point we were saying before, there is some conscious, and I, I mean it, like actively conscious changes that we still need to make across our industry in terms of how we have designed the system that ultimately are essential for us future-proofing how we grow and you know, how we become, how we continue to stay relevant to our clients. Sharon, would you like like to add anything? Yeah, just well, just on the point about authenticity, I think it's absolutely crucial. Uh, we know that in terms of the work that we do at the AA on on trust in advertising and consumer trust, and trust levels just really plummet when they, you know, just know that something's not authentic and and therefore accuse that brand or or the business that that created the ad of inclusion washing or whatever the the equivalent of greenwashing is. I think. Um, and, and that that's down to like every team. It can't just be the team that presents to the client. You know, at the first stage, it should be every team involved, whether it's production or you know, even media planning and buying. I just think the more inclusive and representative those teams can be across the whole supply chain, um, inevitably the more authentic our work will be. And, and you just, just just don't run into those problems. And I'm always struck. I mean, I did a Channel 4's Diversity and Advertising Award. You know, so many of the the pitching teams have have looked at that. They'll look at casting and and who's directing the the commercials and then also struck by those that just don't even give it a second thought and it is all about the pitch on the day so there's still lots of work to be done but I think you can see where it's successful and why it works do you want to add something Rani no I just thought um the discussion about authenticity is really interesting for me and it's something that I've been really introspective about over the last year or so just like looking at my own identity who am I and like remaining in this industry um the thrive and the survive point I made earlier was also about your ability to simulate so what happens is a lot of people that are marginalized so if we're talking about black women in this case in order to survive, they need to simulate something which leads them to develop an inauthentic version of themselves because their ego kicks in and says, girl, you need to fit in here. So you might need to sound a bit more white. You might might need to dress a bit more white. You might need to do something to get you closer in proximity. But what I think is a conversation that needs to be happening is like how this impacts people's mental health because ultimately... And I look at this and, you know, and I'll like we work at calling around being like radically honest. So if I was to be radically honest in this conversation, I am in my late 30s and I joined the industry when I was 20. The industry has shaped me. It's been part of my formative years. It's the only industry I know as a professional. And without certain sort of mentorship and guidance, 
I might have deeply lost myself in this industry and actually not know who Rani is. And that is something that we talk about at Calling, about how everyone's identity contributes to the work. We invite people to identify in the work in itself, the communities we're trying to serve. But if someone has been conditioned to simulate and essentially become an inauthentic version of themselves, which is an avatar. I have this nickname for people in the industry, they're kind of avatars. And I don't want to meet the avatar in my team. I want them to be real. You also impact the work. It's not authentic. But when like young black creative teams are invited into some of these agencies to be on the urban brief, you can see how a young black team might almost perform to a version of blackness that has been depicted or expected from white audiences or white colleagues. Being black sits on a spectrum, you know? And, and, and that's the thing that kind of like, like deeply it breaks my heart because I, anyone that comes to work for me, however they identify, whatever that truth is for them, they show up like that. So if you're queer at calling, I have no expectation that I'm projecting around your queerness or your blackness or your South Asianness, whatever. Be you because we'll hold space for you and you're able to identify in the work and show up. And I think there's like, there's a level of like radicalization that needs to happen, you know, in terms of like the human, like how we become more human in our agencies. Um, but I always say, like, start with the most marginalised people, and that is black women. Ete, you've been nodding throughout that. What would you like to add? Uh, I mean, there's not much more to add. I think Rani's put it brilliantly. I think the, the point that she talked about, um, the kind of um, uh, the, the the spectrum or the complexity within the kind of black community, um, and there is a, you know, there's there's obviously been a, a role in the a narrative that the media has played in, in building a like a, a stereotype of how we should exist yeah, both in British society community but also in the professional kind of workspace and you know that that varies from everything from as as Lani mentioned to your gender to your sexuality to even where you're from like regionally you know we exist outside of London <laughs> we, we exist in kind of other parts and that shapes your your culture and um more you know not to sort of get to 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 um political about it but like even you know people's set of values just because we're from the same community doesn't mean that we have the same kind of leanings or attitudes to sort of uh, different things and um it goes back to the point of why you need to be really engaging with the community to understand that breadth of diversity within your diversity but also that is only ever going to be useful to you to Ronnie's point if those people are allowed to be authentically themselves if they are acting up or living up to a stereotype then you might as well not bother you know, trying to bring diverse people in and create an inclusive um, environment because you're just asking everybody to conform. Okay, um, that is all we have time for today. So that was really, really interesting discussion. Thank you, 
everyone um, for taking time out and talking with us. If you'd like to learn more about what we have been discussing today, please visit our website campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And a big thank you to Haymarket Studio producer Inga Marsden and also to our producer Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. And to you for listening. I hope you will join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye. Goodbye.